Uh, morning. Uh, good to be back. Uh, hey, before we get started this morning, real quickly, I just want to acknowledge there are a few people here uh, today from our uh, future, our fifth uh, church plant, Transform Church, uh, which is starting in the Andover Ham Lake area this fall. Uh, just observing and sort of learning some of our systems today. Uh, in case you were interested about this, we did already indeed uh, get 20 people uh, who've expressed interest and who have signed up to go uh, for nine months or more to help uh, Transform Church get started. So for those of you that have signed up for that, uh, some of you I know are meeting with Mark already. Uh, as you're bravely taking on this endeavor to help us go continue to expand the kingdom of God, uh, we thank you uh, for that. All right, we are jumping back into the book of Luke uh, this morning, which is one of four books in the Bible about the life of Jesus. Uh, we've actually been going through the book of Luke since March of 2018. Uh, we've been kind of on and off looking at it as we've taken some breaks for some other series, but basically we're just going verse by verse uh, through the entire book, studying the life of Jesus. Uh, I know that a ton of you are new here, uh, even within the last couple of months, and so I want to kind of bring you up to speed on what's happened so far in the book of Luke. We are nine chapters in, in a year and a half, so I apologize for that, except I, I'm sorry, not sorry, I guess, because it's good to study the Word of God. Uh, the first two chapters in the book of Luke are really on the births of uh, John the Baptist and of Jesus. And then the next section for uh, chapters 3 through 9, which we're kind of at the end of chapter 9, uh, I actually want to show you a four or five minute video recap of what's happened. I think that's kind of the best way to get you up to speed. Uh, this is from the Read Scripture app. I know many of you use this in house groups in the fall, or you can access any of these videos at the, uh, their website, thebibleproject.com as well. So let's take a look. This is a recap video uh, from chapters uh, 3 to 9 from the book of Luke. Let's take a look. So with all this anticipation, the story moves forward into the next main section, where Luke presents Jesus and his mission. He sets the stage with John's renewal movement at the Jordan River, where he's calling a new, repentant, recommitted Israel into existence through baptism. He's preparing for the arrival of God's kingdom. And then Jesus appears as the leader of this new Israel, and he's marked out by the Spirit and the voice of God from heaven. He is the beloved Son of God. After this, Luke follows with the genealogy, and it traces Jesus' origins back to David, then back to Abraham, and then all the way back to Adam from the book of Genesis. Luke's claiming here that Jesus is the messianic king of Israel who will bring God's blessing, but not only to Israel, the family of Abraham. He is here for all the sons of Adam, for all humanity. After this, Luke has strategically placed the story of Jesus going to his hometown, Nazareth, where he launches his public mission. At a synagogue gathering, Jesus stands up and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and freedom for the prisoners, new sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. Now, along with the other Gospels, Jesus is presented here. He's the messianic king bringing the good news of God's kingdom. But what Luke uniquely highlights are the social implications of Jesus' mission. So he brings freedom. The Greek word is aphasis. It literally means release, and it refers to the ancient Jewish practice of the year of Jubilee described in Leviticus 25. It's when all Israelite slaves were released, when people's debts were canceled, when land that was sold is returned back to families. It's all a symbolic reenactment of God's liberating justice and mercy. And then Jesus says that this good news of release is specifically for 
the poor. Now, in the Old Testament, the poor, or in Hebrew, ani, it's a much broader category than just people who don't have very much money. It refers also to people of low social status in their culture, like people with disabilities or women and children and the elderly. It also can include social outsiders, like people of other ethnic groups, or people whose poor life choices have placed them outside acceptable religious circles. And Jesus says that God's kingdom is especially good news for these people. So after this, Luke immediately puts in front of us a large block of stories, showing us what Jesus' good news for the poor looks like. It involves the healing of a bedridden sick woman, or a man who has a skin disease, or someone who's paralyzed. There are stories here also about Jesus welcoming into his community a tax collector, like Levi, who's not financially poor, but he is a social outsider. There's a story about Jesus forgiving a prostitute. Luke's showing us how Jesus' kingdom brought restoration and reversal of people's whole life circumstances. He's expanding the circle of people who get invited in to discover the healing power of God's kingdom. And as Jesus' mission attracts a large following, he does something even more provocative. He forms these people into a new Israel by appointing over them the 12 disciples as leaders corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Jesus teaches his manifesto of an upside-down kingdom, or as Luke calls it, the sermon given on the plain. He says God's love for the outsider and the poor means that his kingdom brings a reversal of all of our value systems. He is here to form a new alternative people of God who are going to respond to Jesus' invitation by practicing radical generosity, by serving the poor. People who are going to lead by serving and live by peacemaking and forgiveness. People who are deeply pious but who reject religious hypocrisy. Now, Jesus' radical kingdom vision, his claim to divine authority, it starts to generate resistance and controversy, especially from Israel's religious leaders. His outreach to questionable people, it's a threat to their religious traditions and their sense of social stability. And so they start accusing Jesus of blaspheming God, of being a drunk and mixing with sinners. And so this section culminates in a new revelation of Jesus' mission to his disciples. He says that Yes, he is the messianic king and that he's going to assert his reign over Israel by dying in Jerusalem, by becoming the suffering servant king of Isaiah 53 who dies for the sins of Israel. And then the shocking idea, it gets explored in the next story as Jesus goes up a mountain with three of his disciples and he's suddenly transformed in front of them. They're enveloped in this cloud of God's presence who announces, this is my chosen son. And then Moses and Elijah are there, the two other prophets who encountered God's presence and voice on a mountain. And Luke tells us that they're talking together about Jesus' exodus that he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Now that Greek word exodus, it's a clear reference to the exodus story. Luke is portraying Jesus here as a new Moses who will lead his newly formed Israel into freedom and release from the tyranny of sin and evil in all of its forms, personal, spiritual, and social. And that's going to lead us into the second half of the book. But for now, that's the first half of the gospel according to Luke. Okay, so let's get to the second part of Luke. Uh, there's a Bible uh, under all of your chairs if you want to follow along. Uh, we're going to be on page 842, uh, or you can open the Renovation Church app, uh, tap Bible uh, and weekly verses, and you can see it all there as well. 
So in our last two messages on the book of Luke back in March, after Jesus had come down from the mountain after the transfiguration, uh, we saw, one, how the disciples couldn't save a, a boy who was oppressed, and two, right after that, the disciples start inexplicably arguing about which one of them is going to be the greatest. Today, you're going to see the same disciples get it wrong yet again, actually twice in the Bible, and historically, it's all the same day as the same mistakes of our last few messages. So I think there's at least one moral we can pull out of the story right away, and that is this. Don't be so hard on yourself. Right? These disciples made massive mistakes right in the presence of Jesus multiple times a day, and he still loves them, and he still uses them. All right? Okay. All right, so let's start with just uh, two verses here. So we're chapter 9 of Luke. Uh, we are on verse 49. Uh, here's what it says. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Okay, so John and the disciples, they see someone who's out driving out demons in the name of Jesus, and they try and stop them because, well, they're not one of them. They're not one of the chosen team as they look at it. And Jesus corrects them. He says, listen, whoever's not against you is for you. If they're out doing God's work, they're on our team. Now, I actually think these two verses are a good word for much of the Protestant world and its thousands of denominations, right? Because there are churches right here in this city in this region, and they're not against us, right? I think here's the main challenge of our broader passage today, and we're going to look at six or seven verses today, and it's this. Where we want to draw lines, Jesus extends a hand. I think so often we're prone to want to draw lines to kind of differentiate between us, who of course are God's true, right, and holy people who have got it all together and right, and then those other Christians. It's like that old illustration as told by a man walking across the bridge. So I'll, I'll be the man in the illustration. So the man says, he says, one day I was walking a, a, across a bridge and I saw a man who uh, was about to jump and end his life. And I, I said to him, sir, please, please don't jump. And he said, why? What's there to live for? And I said to him, well, are you, are you religious? And the guy said, yes. I said, well, me, me too. I said, well, are you, are you Christian? Are you Buddhist? And he said, well, I'm, I'm Christian. I said, well, m- well, me too. I said, well, are you, are you Protestant or are you Catholic? He said, well, I'm Protestant. I said, well, me too. I said, are you, are you Lutheran or are you Baptist? He said, well, I'm Baptist. I said, well, that's incredible. Me too. And then I said, well, are you Baptist Church of God or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God? He said, well, I'm Reformed Baptist Church of God. I said, oh, that's incredible. Me too. I said, but wait, are you Reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1789, or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1915? And he said, well, I'm actually Reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1915. I said, that's incredible. Me too. I said, but are you Reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1915 Western Congregation, or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1915 Eastern Congregation? And he said, well, I'm Reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1915 Eastern Congregation. So I looked at him and I said, die, you heretic scum. And I pushed him off the bridge. (laughs) It's a good reminder, right? Because I think we're prone to want to just draw lines all the time. 
all over the body of Christ and say, who's right, who's not, who's in, who's out. Now, of course, we've got to draw a line somewhere, right? If someone doesn't believe in the resurrection, if someone's not believing in Jesus through faith, then they're not a Christian. Let's not pretend that they are. Let's not pretend that they're saved. There are all sorts of different types of Christians, though. I've been around many in my 37 years. I came to Christ when I was 18, but I grew up, uh, my parents taking me to a, a mainline, a Protestant church. Uh, I assure you, although it certainly wasn't the norm in the church that I grew up in, uh, there were definitely people in that mainline Protestant church that were on fire for Christ. Uh, when I went to college, I went to a, a university that was 85% uh, Catholic students. And again, many of the students on the weekends were interested in anything but Jesus. But I assure you, I met many Catholic students who were passionate about their relationship with Christ. They believed in Jesus through faith for their salvation. Uh, when I was in college, uh, there weren't a ton of Bible-believing churches in town, so I actually attended this very charismatic church. Uh, some of you, I know some of you in this room would have been just freaked out attending their worship. They, worship was over an hour. Uh, many of the women, that's like the music part was over an hour. Many of the women would wear wedding dresses during worship because they are the bride of Christ, right? <laughs> it was one of those churches where if you like, didn't have your hands in the air, they were looking at you funny, like, kid, why aren't your hands in the air? <laughs> that was just worship. But we went there because the pastor was the best Bible-believing, or the best Bible teacher in town. So we kind of sit through worship, and then I would just take pages of notes as this guy taught the Bible. And I assure you, totally different type of church, right? But there were many, many people who really, really loved Jesus in that church. I was a youth pastor in the Evangelical Free Church of America. I'm now a pastor in Converge, which is just a word we use because we don't want to say that we're Baptist. And... and <laughs> In all, I've got a friend who's a Greek Orthodox. He just loves Jesus with all of his heart. See, in all expressions of Christianity, you can find people who follow Jesus by faith. I think we miss this when we just want to stereotype, and we just want to draw lines. Now, I don't want you to misinterpret me. Uh, we take our theology uh, incredibly serious uh, around here. That's why we offer five Bible and theology classes in the summer. So yes, I believe that you should land on biblical conclusions, but just keep in mind, when every single one of you get to heaven, you're going to have a conversation with Jesus someday, and he's going to look at you very gracefully, and he's going to say, seriously, you believe that about me? <laughs> I might do a little snickering with grace, right? Because there's not a person in this room that has a completely correct theology. And if that's true, that ought to foster some humility in us. It ought to foster some hesitancy to want to just draw lines all over the body of Christ. And so Jesus is teaching the disciples in this moment to extend a hand to other people who are doing ministry too. Whoever is not against you is for you. If they're not against a biblical Jesus, then let's work together. Uh, there's a helpful passage in uh, one of Paul's letters in uh, Philippians where Paul says, he says, listen, there are some people out there that are preaching Christ out of envy, out of rivalry. Some people are doing it out of selfish ambition. And we hear that and we think, okay, there are pastors out there that are doing it out of selfish ambition. We think, get the marker out, draw a line. I don't want to be associated with those people. And yet, what does Paul say? I think it's actually shocking to many of us as modern believers. Philippians 1 verse 18, he says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, 
Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. He's saying that even in that, that we should extend a hand before we draw a line. I think one of the questions is, but how do you know? Like, how do you know where do you draw the line? Where do you extend a hand? I think one of, there's many rubrics you could use here, but uh, one of the things we can use to help guide us in that question of where to draw the line or not is the, is the issue of, is there the presence of fruit in their ministry? Is there fruit from their church? Are people getting saved? Are people who are getting discipled, are they growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Are you seeing more love and self-control and patience in their life? In other words, can you see God moving through their ministry? Uh, Keep in mind, it's not like John came over to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, uh, we saw some people out there saying that you're actually not the Son of God and that you you can't save them. Now, if they said that, and we told them to stop, if, if they said that to Jesus, Jesus would have said, Good, tell them to stop. Right? Because there is no fruit in heresy. But what did John say? He goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, someone else out there is driving out demons. They're setting people free from darkness and they're turning them to God. But what is that? That's fruit. Listen, I think we as American Christians need to stop speaking negatively about other churches. Just because they look and act differently than ours. Okay, if they believe the scriptures, which I get it, some don't, right? Okay, that's a different issue. If they believe the scriptures, they're preaching the gospel, there's fruit, who cares how they do it? When I read this passage, I sometimes wonder if there's not a hint of jealousy amongst the disciples. Okay, if you go back even just nine verses, same chapter in the book of Luke, we see that earlier that same day that the disciples were unable to do what? To cast a demon out of a boy. So this is the same day, along comes someone else who isn't them, doesn't belong to their group, and they're having all sorts of success with the very exact same thing that they were unable to do. And the disciples tell them, well, stop, you, can't, you can't be doing that, you're not in the true Jesus club. I think that American Christians are notorious for falling into this sort of trap. It's a jealousy trap, really. We talk. We talk about other churches. We say, oh, mm, did you hear about this church? Often it's a church that's large. Pick pick anybody's church. Maybe they're in a church of 50 or 100 or 500. We usually pick ones larger than us. We say, oh, did you hear about this large church? Because, again, it's coming from jealousy so often. We say, yeah, okay, there's all those people there. But then we always add this caveat. We say, but let me tell you why they're not doing it right. Well, what are we doing? We start drawing lines. Their theology, their, their method, their strategy, it's not completely. And we're drawing lines. And we're missing out on celebrating together as a team, as one church, about what God is doing through the church of Jesus Christ because instead we're just drawing lines and partitions. If they're not against us, They're for us. Personally, I love it. I love it when people are using different strategies and different methods to reach people for Christ. This is one of the reasons that we plant so many churches out of this church. Our area does not need another 25 renovation churches. Because we're not going to reach everyone in the way that we do ministry. We need to send out churches to do it differently differently. 
than we do, not just clone ourselves. So personally, I love it. I love it when people are starting house churches, starting churches at their place of work, when people are starting biker churches, cowboy churches, mega churches, churches with hymns, churches with rap music, churches aimed at young people, at seniors, at addicts. If they're doing it, I love it. Some of you know one of my favorite quotes of all time. It was when a woman came out to D.L. Moody and she was, she was drawing lines. She was critiquing the way he was doing evangelism. And he just looked at this woman and he said back to her this. He said, well, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. I just like people who are out there doing it. All right, so we keep reading in our passage today and we're going to see a totally different type of line, line drawing, but the theme is the same in this section. So let's continue on now. Verse 51. It says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He's purposefully going to the cross here. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> but, Jesus, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. Okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of biblical background on this passage, and I, I think this is going to help give this a lot more context and help it like a little bit more sense. But to do so, let's, let's look at a map, okay? That's a good plan. Okay, so check this out. Here we have, this is the region, uh, I brought my laser pointer, sorry, uh, not, again, but not sorry. Uh, this is uh, Galilee, where Jesus is. This is going to be the route that he actually takes to Jerusalem, by the way. Uh, down here is the, is the region of Judea. So uh, most of the Jews live down here in Judea and up here in Galilee, but the region in between is a region called Samaria. Now, the Jews up here and down here did not like the Samaritans, and the feeling was mutual. The Samaritans are an interesting uh, group of people. So they're actually a mixed group of people. If you read in the Old Testament, the Assyrians came from way over here somewhere, and they came to the northern kingdom of Israel, and they exiled the people over to Assyria. And the people that were left intermixed with the people from surrounding regions, and eventually they became what we know in biblical times as the Samaritans. They were kind of Jewish, but kind of not. So they had their own version of the Old Testament, for example. Uh, they had their own version of the temple where they offered sacrifices on Mount Gerizim, which is in Samaria. They even celebrated the Passover in their own way. So when the Samaritans hear that Jesus is coming through, he's passing through their region to head down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish Passover, they reject him. They want nothing to do with him. Why? Because he's not embracing what they're doing. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Because many people in modern day reject Jesus for the exact same reason. They reject Jesus because he's not embracing the lifestyle that they want to live. And I want you to think critically about this. Jesus is extending a hand, but to draw you to himself. His hand is not there for you to draw him in to fit into your worldview. His hand is there to draw you into his truth. So James and John, they're upset that these Samaritans are rejecting the Son of God. And they say, hey, Jesus, 
You want us to call down fire from heaven on these Samaritans? Now, that sounds a bit intense, right? But it actually makes sense if you understand the context. It's a reference to Elijah in the Old Testament. Now, keep in mind, we saw this in the video recap, James and John were just on the mountain the day before with Elijah the prophet. Now, if you go back again to the Old Testament, 2 Kings uh, chapter 1, there's a story where Ahaziah, who's the Israelite king at the time, who lived in the same region, Samaria, the exact same region that they're in, he gets seriously injured. So King Ahaziah decides that he's going to send some messengers to consult Baal, who's a false god, it's an idol, to see if he's going to recover from his injuries. So he sends the messengers off to Baal. Well, along the way, the great prophet Elijah stops the messengers, and he says, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're off to consult a fake God? He said, by the way, your king, your king is going to die. So the messengers are disturbed. They go back to King Ahaziah, and Ahaziah is irate. So he sends out 50 men to go capture and bring back Elijah to kill him. Well, the 50 men, they eventually find Elijah, and they see him up on this hill, and they say, man of God, come down here. And Elijah says to him, he says, listen, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you all. And just like that, bam, fire comes down from heaven and consumes all of the Sumerians. So, that's the context for this passage. It's that exact same story from that exact same region that James and John have in mind when they say, hey, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire on the Samaritans? But Jesus rebukes them for thinking this way. Why? Because this, is, this goes back to the main theme of Luke. Well, we've been calling this series for a year and a half now. The series is lost and found because Jesus, his first offer is always to rescue the lost, not just bring the fire. Elijah, that's the, that's the old way. Right? This is the new covenant. And so Jesus' ministry looks different than Elijah's, and so should ours. I think there are a lot of people today who look a little bit more like Elijah than they do like Jesus. They just want to draw lines all over the place. You want to look at the people who don't follow Christ and say, no, 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 they're the bad people. Look at how they're living. Let's stop them. Let's fight them. Let's call down fire on them. But the gospel just doesn't draw lines like that. And one of the reasons it doesn't is because we were once the bad people right? We didn't save ourselves. We didn't earn our way to Jesus. None of us can look back and say, oh, I did this, so let me draw a line because I'm better than the people out there. No, Jesus just extended his hand to us sinners. My fear is, even though this is actually a pretty basic biblical principle, that so few of us imitate Jesus in this passage. Most of us are either A, completely avoiding people who don't know Christ. Like, we're like the Jews. In those days, they used to just walk around Samaria. And a lot of us, we live our lives like that. You don't have anybody in your life that doesn't know Christ. Or B, many of us are just ready to call, I mean, it's vocally, right? But we're ready to just call down fire on the people out there in the world. And I will tell you, in neither of those strategies do we imitate Jesus Christ. As believers, we need to be so careful that those who are across the line of faith from us see us extending a hand to them, not 
drawing lines and building fences so we can say that we're better than them. Or worse yet, building a fence so we can throw stones at them. Let me give you an application of this. Some of you, for the sake of the kingdom of God, need to just get off social media until you can master this biblical principle from Luke chapter 9. Because instead of extending a hand of grace to the unsaved with your life, you're just drawing lines and you're building fences and you're always posting about how the Democrats or the Republicans are so foolish and so nonsensical. So if you actually use different words than that. You're always posting about whoever believes this certain position, whoever follows this, whoever lives like this is a moron. And your loose tongue is damaging your witness for Jesus Christ. Because you're drawing this line and you're putting most of your non-Christian friends on the other side of a line you've called stupid. And then 30 days later, you're asking them if they want to come to church with you. And they will never say yes to you unless you can begin to master this biblical principle of hand before line. Why? Because they see you. They see you as a condemning line drawer. Okay, what does Jesus say about grace? What is, you know John 3, 16? What does he say in the next verse? Look at this, John three seventeen. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He didn't come into the world to condemn people for not knowing the truth. They don't know. They don't know. One of the things I wish for you, I wish, I wish you could have known me before I knew Jesus. There may be two or three people in this room that did. I wish you could have known me. Why do I say that? Because I would be the exact person that you would be condemning at the office, that you would be mocking on social media. Right? When you're saying, I can't believe those idiots believe this about the world, that was me. When you're going around talking or posting and saying, I can't believe that people are making moral choices living like that. They're so stupid. They're ruining their lives. I can't believe. That was me. For most of you, that was you. But that is not how Jesus came to us, was it? He didn't come with a marker to make us feel like we were alienated across some line that we could never cross. He came with an outstretched hand. He came, as our passage says, and he resolutely set out to Jerusalem for the cross to die. So on the cross, he could extend a hand to sinners like us. And that is what we need to imitate with our lives. Let me pray. Lord, we pray that we would look more like you. We repent. Uh, we ask for forgiveness for all the places that we are drawing the lines instead of extending hands like you extended your hand to sinners like us. God, as we finish with worship, may we sing, may we praise you of your incredible and merciful love for us, that you would love people as messed up as us. And may we reflect the same thing to the world around us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.